Well, you know, church, as we start a new year, oftentimes there are many folks who say, as, whatever reason, right, it's just another day. But whenever that clock strikes midnight on December 31st, um, for whatever reason, it feels like there is a restart in our lives. Um, over the course of the Christmas break and holidays, uh, we had to do a little uh, quarantining in our home because of some close contact exposure. And so over the course of that time, um, I had to school my children in some Super Mario Brothers. Okay, so we played a little Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo Switch, and it brought me back to the days of my childhood and playing this device. Okay, with the little gray console. And I can remember playing on that for hours as a child, and any time I got to a place that I was frustrated or disappointed with the results, on the front of that machine that just said reset, and you could push that button, and you start right back over at the beginning. And for whatever reason, for many of us, every time a new year rolls around, uh, it's, like I said, it's just another hour, it's just another day, but for many of us, we think of it as an opportunity for a reset and a restart. And I can think of few texts better suited for us thinking about resetting in 2021 than the one before us. It may not seem obvious at first glance, but as we work through it together this morning, I hope you will see that it really is a compelling picture for what a reset in 2021 might look like in my life, in your life, and in the life of our church. So as we take a look at this text this morning, here situated in Mark chapter 11, thinking about what our lives might look like in 2021, there's two things. I only got two points for you this morning. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon, it just means I only have two points, okay? Um, two points as we think about resetting in 2021, and the first one is this, as we move forward into this new year, my hope and my prayer is that we would center our lives on Jesus, that our lives would be centered on Him. Now as we look at the text, in the text what we have here and before us is what scholars call a Markin sandwich, okay? Now it's not roast beef, uh, it's not ham or turkey or or bacon and cheddar, okay, but it is a sandwich technique, a literary device that Mark uses throughout his gospel in which he takes two stories and he tucks the beginning of one story and the end of one story and he sandwiches another story in the middle, right? So you got two slices of bread, the meat in the middle, and the meat in the middle usually carries the punch of what he's communicating as he puts it for us on the page. And so this sandwich that we have in front of us has these three layers. It's got a top slice of bread, a bottom slice of bread, and it's got meat in the middle. The top slice of bread is in verses Jesus on his way to Jerusalem from Bethany curses a fig tree along the side of the road. The bottom slice of bread is in verses 20 to 21 where he and the disciples find their way going back out of Jerusalem right toward Bethany and they come across this tree that has Jesus had cursed it is now withered so the top slice of bread Jesus curses the fig tree bottom slice of bread they find the fig tree again and it's withered away from its roots the meat in the middle is found in verses 15 to 19 where Jesus issues a scathing condemnation of temple operations in Jerusalem so you got bread, bread, meat. Let's take a look at these three layers together this morning. First of all, the top slice. Top slice. Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem, and He's leaving from the village of Bethany and moving toward Jerusalem. And on His way, we're told that He gets hungry. 
Okay, it'd be a natural bodily response to travel, okay? So he's hungry, and in the distance he sees a fig tree whose leaves have sprouted, and he approaches the fig tree looking for anything that is edible, and he finds nothing there. We're told in the text, for it was not the season for figs. And so Jesus curses the fig tree, saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you, this particular fig tree, again. Now you may think, that's a little harsh, right? Why is Jesus being so hard on the tree? Because it's not the season for figs, and there ain't no figs whenever he goes to approach it. My, my South Louisiana education came out there with the word ain't. But listen, you got a little horticultural lesson for you here this morning to understand what's going on here. After the fig harvest, the fig harvest usually took place in mid-August to mid-October in that time frame in Israel. And after the fig harvest, the branches of the fig tree that would sprout these buds that would remain undeveloped through the winter months. So as soon as the figs were plucked, buds would sprout in their place and those would remain there throughout the course of the winter months. And in March or April, these buds would begin to swell. They would begin to grow into these little small green knobs on the branches. Have you ever seen a fig tree? You probably are familiar with these things. Little small green knobs that would be on the branches in March and April. And in Hebrew, these were known as pagim. Okay? Pagim. And shortly after the pagim would appear and begin to swell and emerge, the leaf buds would sprout on the branches. And they begin to cover the branches in the spring. So usually by April or May, those branches were covered in leaves and you had these pagim that were emerging, swelling, growing in different sizes and different stages of maturation. So once a fig tree was in leaf, you would expect to find its branches loaded with these pagim, these little knobs in various stages of their maturity. And now while pagim are not yet ripened into fully mature summer figs that you would want to pick and can, that's what my parents did with them anyway, that you would want to pick and eat, right? They were oftentimes and could be picked at their various stages and eaten, even though they weren't a ripe summer fig as of yet. And so it's, 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 it, it seems to be that Jesus sees the tree in full leaf, right? But there are no pagim. There are no knobs there. There are no stages of maturation of fruit that are emerging off of its branches. So in, in, here's what's going on. There's all these signs of what sh- where there should be fruit emerging, but there is no fruit. And so Jesus pronounces judgment upon the tree, saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, it's one, you need to recognize, too, that in the Old... Here, here's, here's a piece of information for you. In the Old Testament, when the prophets would pronounce judgments, oftentimes they would use very vivid Im- imagery to describe what was going to take place. And fig imagery shows up in several places throughout the Old Testament when the prophets are pronouncing judgment. For instance, Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
or Jeremiah 29, whenever God's pronouncing judgment upon the false prophets who are giving Israel a message in Babylon that does not come from Him, God pronounces judgment upon them in verse 17 of Jeremiah 29, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. And so this fig imagery shows up in the Old Testament in several places where God is pronouncing judgment upon His people or upon the nations. And so when Jesus pronounces judgment here, that's very symbolic image of the figs that would never produce fruit again because where there were signs of what, where, where there should have been fruit, there was no fruit. And so that's what's going on in the top slice of bread. The bottom slice of bread. In verses 20 to 21, we're told that whenever they pass back by that very same tree, on their way out of Jerusalem, they find that it has withered from its roots. In fact, the text is very explicit. All the way down, right? It is decaying. It has been cut off. And Peter recalls the curse because he'd heard Jesus speak these words, and he draws Jesus' attention to the tree that has shriveled up and can no longer produce what it was made to produce. And he says, look, Jesus, look at what's going on here. It's the bottom slice of the bread. Now to the meat in the middle Stuffed in between these two encounters with the fig tree where Jesus curses it and they discover it to be withered, you find Jesus' scathing condemnation of temple operations in Jerusalem. Now, to understand what's happening here in the text, you've got to understand something about the temple in Jerusalem. In Ju- this is Herod's temple, okay? So this is the... the, 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 the not the one that David, that Solomon built, okay? Not the one that was rebuilt under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. This is Herod's temple that is being built here in Jerusalem. And in the temple, there were four divisions of this temple, okay? So you had the outermost division, the court of the Gentiles. And that's where any foreigners, aliens, strangers, Gentiles were welcome to come to pray and to worship Yahweh. Then you had the court inside, in, then, in, then you had a big wall, and inside that wall was what was called the sanctuary. And inside the sanctuary, there were three divisions. You had the court of women, you had the court of Israel, which was for circumcised Jewish males only, and then you had the holy of holies. So you had these three divisions, and separating the court of the Gentiles from the sanctuary was a large wall. And on that wall, there were signs posted in increments. And those signs were in various languages, so no one would be without excuse. So it was in Greek, it was in Latin, and it was in Aramaic. And on that signage read these words. No foreigner may enter without, within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. So it's your fault. If you're executed because you come in here. If you go past the point of no return. So the court, so the court of the Gentiles was the only place that foreigners, the only place that aliens, the only place that strangers and sojourners, the only place that Gentiles were allowed to be for prayer and worship. And yet by Jesus' day, the court of the Gentiles a place intended for prayer, a place intended for worship, had turned into an open-air market. Think of like a street bazaar, 
All right, where all these vendors are peddling all their goods and services. It's filled with animal dealers and money changers. And Jesus says, in fact, it has become, in his words, a den of robbers. Now, he's likely drawing that language out of Jeremiah chapter 7. In verses 8 and following, where Jeremiah issues a condemnation upon temple operations in his day. Listen to what he says. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah is saying this, I see what's going on in the temple. Basically, you leave here and you live however you would like, and you come back and say, we're delivered because we brought these sacrifices and we made the appropriate offerings, and yet we continue to go on in all these abominations and the worship of other gods and all these profane, profane acts. And he says, has this place become a den of robbers for you, a corrupt place for you? And then God says through Jeremiah, he says, listen, object lesson for you, Israel, go to Shiloh. That's where my presence first dwelt. That's where I first made myself known amongst my people. And see what I did there on account of their evil and do not think that I would not do that here as well. A den of robbers, he says. Why is he called a den of robbers? Listen, at, in, in the court of the Gentiles, you had all these tables set up and you had all types of animals being bought and sold and traded there in the court of the Gentiles. Because you had pilgrims coming from afar and instead of bringing, perhaps instead of bringing the animals with them to bring sacrifices, right, to bring their doves for the poorest of the poor or to bring the rams, right, for making, making whatever offerings or sacrifices they were coming to make there in the temple, right, instead of bringing them with them, you could buy them when you got there. How convenient, right? Let's set up shop and, we'll, and this whole commercial trade of these animals became very, very corrupt, however, Right, because you, the, the proceeds coming out of those exchanges went to fuel the pockets of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And they had a system arranged and set up to where when you brought your bird in, if you're the poorest of the poor, bringing a dove, right, or you brought your lamb that you thought was the best of your flock and you brought it in there to Jerusalem and you were going to the temple to make your offering, to make your sacrifice... And then you, had, you brought it to the chief priest, and the, and the priest said, Nah, this one's not going to cut it, right? Not going to cut it. And so you've got to go over here to our bird people, all right? Our bird people over here, they've got birds that will cut it, okay? And so you go and you buy a bird from them, and then you leave your bird, the bird you brought there with them, and then you come over here and you bring me the bird that you bought, and we can make it happen for you. We can offer the sacrifice, make the offering, you'll be good to go. Well, people will go and do that. They would buy the bird, leave the bird, come and offer the bird. And then the next person who comes with a bird says, no, that bird's not good enough. Go exchange it or go buy one from this. And they would give them the very same bird that this person had just dropped off. Right? And so there was this corruption as it fueled an industry there in the temple lining the pockets of the Sanhedrin. 
And Jesus, that's why Jesus says it's become a den of robbers. That this whole temple operation here is corrupt. Now in Jewish day, Jewish expectations, they expected the Messiah to come and they expected the Messiah to purge the temple and to purge Jerusalem of the Gentiles, of the pagans. To get rid of the aliens, to get rid of the foreigners, to get rid of the sojourners and strangers and leave nothing but the pure Israelite and Jews behind. And yet when Jesus comes into the temple, look, he does exactly the opposite. He doesn't purge the temple of the Gentiles. He purges it for them. So that the place carved out for prayer, the place carved out for worship, for the peoples of the nations could once again be, have its proper place and purpose. See, in Isaiah chapter 56 and following, verses 6 and following, listen to what Isaiah says about the purpose of the temple being for prayer. He says this, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. So those who are not native Jewish individuals, ethnically Jew, who join themselves to the Lord, he says. They love the name of the Lord. They, aim, they minister to Him to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and makes a joyful, holds fast in my covenant. I'm sorry. These I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So God through Isaiah is saying, my house, this place is intended to be a place of prayer for all the peoples of the earth, all the tribes, all the nations, all the tongues, not a corrupt commercial enterprise. And so Jesus lays an axe to the root of the sacrificial system there in the temple courts. The corruption that existed there to make it a place for all peoples, all tribes, all nations, all tongues. Because he says, listen, there are people who are not yet gathered that I still have to gather and to bring in. And so Jesus brings the commerce of the sacrificial system in the temple to a screeching halt and he lays an axe, listen, to the institution of the temple as a whole. Because oftentimes, in our, in our, like in our Bibles, whenever you read this story, Oftentimes the heading in this story is Jesus cleanses the temple. But I want you to consider something. Jesus is not cleansing the temple. He's dissolving it, church. He's dissolving it. It's a big difference. Based on where this story is located in Mark, just prior to Holy Week, Mark is showing us that what Jesus is aiming to do is dissolve the temple. In fact, he will go on to say in further on in Mark's gospel, and we'll get there in several weeks, but he'll say things like this about the temple. Not one stone of this temple will be left on another. Every one of them will be cast down. And then in chapter 14 of Mark, Jesus says that while this temple made of stones will be destroyed, it'll be replaced by a temple that will be torn down and will be rebuilt in three days, speaking of his own body. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, that what, what took place here in the temple, the whole sacrificial system, it will be replaced. 
No longer will there be the need for animal sacrifices because there will be a sacrifice that will be made once for all that would tear the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, allowing access to God for people from every nation. Not just the high priest once a year. So what does all this mean? The fig tree church symbolizes the temple as the means of approach to God. Listen, the temple from its roots. From its roots is being replaced by Jesus Himself. By Jesus Himself. Top slice, bottom slice, meet in the middle. All of this Jesus says, is going away. It's withering. The place of flurry and furious activity where there is no fruit is dying. It's withering and it will be replaced by me. So listen, church, as you think about resetting in 2021, so I want to, as we think about centering our life on Jesus, here's what I want to encourage us to do. That we would not substitute a flurry of activity for actual fruit in our lives. A flurry of activity. And this may mean some recalibrating for us. We may need to be reminded this morning that furious and frantic religious activity is not the same thing as actual fruit. See, when Jesus goes into the temple, there's all kinds of things going on. But in the same way that that fig tree had no pagim, had no knobs, had no fruit that was maturing and developing, so also that temple operation in Jerusalem had no fruit that was maturing and developing, even though it had all kinds of religious activity. And we are so prone, particularly in the 21st century modern West, to substitute actual fruit for activity. I'm not saying that all activity is not actual fruit, but we can be so furious in our pace, filled with all kinds of religious duties and activities, but never be bearing fruit because our lives are not centered on Jesus. They are centered on our are on the wheel, the religious wheel that we are running around constantly. And in 2021, some of us may need to deepen our dependence and grow our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit so we might actually bear fruit, not just be involved in a flurry of activity. Maybe we would do so by implementing practices in our lives like silence and solitude and fasting and prayer. And listen, we're going to do a, a renewed seminar here in uh, several months on the spiritual disciplines. I want to encourage you. Come participate in that and then take those things and begin to press them one at a time into your life with the aim of seeing actual fruit born as opposed to just frantically running around doing all kinds of activity. See, a life that is centered on Jesus will be a fruitful life. In fact, that's why Jesus says in John chapter 15, He says, I am the vine, you 
You, Christian, are the branches. If anyone remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much, what? Fruit. Apart from me, you can do a few things. Is that what what he says? (laughs) Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. See, a life that is not centered on God as He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ and yielding to and dependent upon the Holy Spirit will be like the temple in Jesus' day with all kinds of activity but no actual fruit. Center your life on Him in 2021. The second thing this text teaches us is this. I think that we ought to cultivate an unflinching faith. Cultivate an unflinching faith. Attached to the judgment pronounced on the temple and all of its corrupted commerce, in verses 12 to 21, we find a call to faith-filled prayer in verses 22 to 25. Essentially what Jesus says is this, don't put your faith in what takes place there in that temple that we just left behind us, but put your faith in what will take place in this temple. In me. Just have faith in God. It's a command that He gives. Right? Jesus, Jesus doesn't give a whole lot of suggestions. Okay? He issues a command. It's actually an imperative in the text. Have faith in God. Not in the chief priests. Not in their religious hula hoops that they have waving around their waist. Not in the religious activity that you had given yourself to, but have faith in God. And then he, attached to that, he says there's a stunning promise. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. It's a stunning, a stunning promise he attaches to that. Now the words have received it is an interesting expression. It refers to the certainty of a future act based upon the reliability and character of God that it's spoken of in the past tense. In other words, I believe so much in the character of God. I believe so deeply in the faithfulness of God, in the trustworthiness of God, that I'm going to believe I've already received what I've asked for. Not that I will one day, but that I have. That's, that's the book. That's in the book. Right here in this text. And to punctuate this point, listen, Jesus gives an astonishing visual. Uh, he's got all, he, listen, Jesus uses all kinds of object lessons here for the disciples. The fig tree that's withering by the road that he curses, right? And then this mountain image that he gives. Now, the symbol of a mountain may have been very, very visual to the disciples. As they walked with Jesus, looking to the southern horizon where there is a peak shaped like a volcano, which comes into view as you move from Bethany and reach the crest of the Mount of Olives. This peak comes into view. And this was not a natural peak. The peak is actually the fortress of Herodian. It was one of the many fortresses that Herod the Great built as places of refuge in event of rebellion from within amongst the people or invasion from without. Armies coming in to overthrow them. So he had a place to go. And Herod had quite literally removed an adjacent hill to the Herodian Right? The base of which is still visible today in order to surround the fortress with earthenworks to fortify it more fully. So Herod quite literally changed the face of Judea by moving a mountain. 
And so when Jesus draws on this image, he says, if you think that's something, if you think what Herod did is something, for those who truly trust in God, who don't doubt the power of God, they can move greater mountains than the Herodian and cast them in the sea and do away with them for good. It's a stunning visual that he gives about the power of prayer and an unflinching faith. Listen, I, I can remember as a child, and I see my children doing this at times as well, right? whenever they round a corner, right? kind of like sneaking up on another family member in order to try to scare them, right? When they scare them, right? When you jump, you flinch, you pull back. And I think oftentimes whenever we face massive, massive obstacles, we have a faith that tends to flinch in the face of those things. And Jesus is calling us to cultivate a faith that doesn't flinch. It doesn't jump back. It doesn't pull back but continues to press into God in prayer and petition, believing in the trustworthiness, reliability, and faithfulness of God in the face of whatever mountain stands before us. Now listen, church, I think it's time that we stop being afraid of passages like this one. Stop being afraid of them. Now, make no mistake... The Word of Faith movement has certainly hijacked texts like this one. Okay, they've, they've taken them for their own purposes. And it, so it makes us fearful of embracing them in their full reality. Because in the Word of Faith movement, they walk around trying to decree and declare things to come into existence that are not, or decree and declare things to not be that are. But listen... The Bible is very clear that no one decrees and declares things to be that are not other than God. And no one decrees and declares things that are to not be other than God. He is the only one who is able to decree and declare with that kind of power and authority. So just so we're clear on that, right? So we rightly, like there's a, there's, a, there's a response in us, we rightly do not want to promise things God has not promised. Right? We rightly do not want to lead people to practices that would disillusion their souls. We rightly do not want people to believe that Jesus is not sufficient for them in their joy and in their sorrow because they're going to encounter sorrow because they can't decree it away. But we are wrong to try to talk around these, apologize for these, not take them at face value and ignore them or try to pass over them. We must come to terms with them in a biblical framework, but then believe what they have to say and embrace the fullness of their reality so we don't shrink back from them. But with full faith, we say, yes, I believe. I believe that God is able to move this mountain. And so I'm going to pray, I'm going to believe that He has. Not that He will, but I'm going to believe that He has. That's what the text is saying. At face value. And so as we move into 2021, I want to challenge us as a church to cultivate an unflinching faith. As we center our lives on Jesus, 
right, as we fix our eyes on him, as the author of Hebrews says, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has offered the final sacrifice once for all for the forgiveness of sins, the one who is the temple, the meeting place now between God and man. There is no other meeting place between God and man other than Jesus. As the temple has withered away from its roots, as we center our lives on Him, might we cultivate an unflinching faith in 2021 to move forward trusting and believing that God is faithful, that God is good. And even, listen, even, because many of us know in this room, because we've prayed for mountains to move. We've prayed for them to go. Right? We've prayed for the cancer to be removed, for the tumor to disappear, and it has not. Listen, I, I've, I've said this to you before, and I will say it again. What do you do in those moments, right? right? The, God is not a genie in a bottle, okay? That we rub and we get our three wishes. It's not how this works. Yet at this, so, so whenever we pray and mountains aren't moved. And listen, I, I had to have this conversation with a dear friend recently who asked the question, like, why? We petitioned, why? We prayed, why? We confessed sin and went to the elders of our church, why is he still dead? Why didn't God spare him? And all, all, I can, all I can say in that moment is that I'm, he, God is God and I am not. He has purpose in all things. Even Paul petitioned for the thorn in the flesh to be removed on three separate occasions. And God said what? No. My grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. And whenever we pray for mountains to be moved, and they are not, what we have to say is this. I've said it before and I'll say it again. That God has given, well, He will give you whatever you ask for in prayer or whatever you would have asked for if you knew everything that He knew. If you knew everything that He knew. of not just what would take place on this day, but what would take place on this day and how it would affect what would take place tomorrow and how that would affect what would take place the next day and how that would, what, what that would affect what would take place 20 years from now in the lives of your children. If you knew everything that he knew, as hard as it is to believe on today, this is what you would have asked for. And I say that in the same breath that I say in 2021, what if we as a church began to pray for mountains to be moved? Pray for mountains to be moved. What are some God-honoring, Christ-exalting, 
Spirit-dependent prayers that we need to pray in 2021. Listen, I'm not saying, God, make me rich. Not what I'm talking about. But where are there sins and addictions in your life that for you are like Mount Everest that you think you will never be rid of? That you have resigned yourself to rather than resolved yourself against And as we move into 2021, what if you began to pray, God, I never thought that I could be free from this. But would you move the mountain? What about the apathy in our souls toward God and His Word and His ways that that would be cast into the sea? What about healing in our marriages? Where there have been years of strife and struggle. What about the, the challenges in the relationships with your children as you seek to be a parent who would raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Which is work. What about mountains in our church? So when, some, when, I, when, I, when I made the statement last fall that we were looking at launching a camp, capital campaign next fall, some of you were like, yes! Some of you were like, oh my gosh. And I wonder, if there's a mountain, do we believe that God can move and provide every penny that we need I wish I had time to tell you the story. We've seen His provision in the past as He's prompted and led us to where we are today. What makes us think that He won't provide in the future? What about mountains in our city or around the globe? Big things that you think, we can never be rid of this as a nation, never be rid of this as a land. We would pray. And I do not assume, I do not assume that we will move into a utopic vision of the world because that won't come until He comes. But what if we actually didn't flinch and pull back from those big things that we see in our windshield? But they drove us to our knees to petition God. Would you move it? Would you move it? A better way to reset in 2021 than to center our lives upon the only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. There is no temple. There are no goats. There are no lambs. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He's the meeting place. That we would meet with Him in 2021, center our lives on Him, and step forward in an unflinching faith, believing He's able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Would you pray with me, church? Father, we thank You today for Your Word. We thank You 
that we no longer are bound geographically by making pilgrimages to a place where we could bring offerings or sacrifices, God, but we we have a mediator. We have a temple, a meeting place, and His name is Jesus. He is Your one and only Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn above all creation. The one who deserves all glory and majesty and honor and praise. The old covenant has, has been fulfilled. It has been done away with. It is dissolved, withered. As the new covenant has taken its place through the shedding of His blood and the breaking of His body and His resurrection from the grave. And Father, through His resurrection from the grave, You have dealt with the greatest mountain. The, the mountain of our sin and shame. And so Father, may we not flinch at any other mountain that we lay our eyes upon. Any other mountain that would strike fear in our hearts. Any other mountain that would paralyze us from obedience. But when we walk into this year with an unflinching faith, believing in our hearts that we've received what we, might, what we have asked for, as we pray, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, and Spirit-dependent prayers, may You cast May You cast mountains into the sea before us this year and may the resultant response of our hearts be praise and worship and adoration. And when You choose not to, in accordance with Your own providence and purposes, may the resultant response of our hearts be praise and glory and adoration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.